in 1 Corinthians, um, remember Paul wrote to this church. He, he had started this church about 50, 51 A.D., wrote to him about 55. There was, it was primarily a Gentile church. And I think we need to remember, and it's important, that for Paul, Peter, the gospel writers, and, and a lot of the New Testament is aimed at Gentiles, Gentile believers and Gentile lost people. The scripture they had is what we call the Old Testament. So obviously they refer to that scripture. Now Gentiles, in their, before they came to Christ, didn't give a rip about Jewish scripture. But once they came to Jesus, they didn't become experts. They didn't start following the laws and all that. But they were taught how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Now that's why I tell you all the time. I tell you this constantly. The Old Testament promises something the New Testament fulfills. If you don't get that, you're going to mess it all up. And people that don't understand that all of the Old Testament culminates in Jesus, they just mess it up. How in the world do you think Gentiles would ever come to understand anything about Jesus if the Old Testament didn't point to him? So when they came to the Jewish scriptures, they didn't give a rip about the tabernacle. They didn't care about the ceremonial law. They didn't care how many candles were in the candlesticks. They didn't care how often the priest served. None of that mattered. They cared about how it pointed to Jesus and how that was always a part of God's plan. So when we come to parts like we're going to do today, where Paul relies heavily on imagery from the Old Testament. Understand, and, and I get this a lot, you know, I'll become, you know, do all the commentaries and all the work, and sometimes they just get so lost in the minutiae of those events, they forget who Paul wrote to. He wrote to guys and gals who didn't have a thorough knowledge of the history of the Jewish people. So what they needed were the fundamental principles that would help them make those connections. Now, there was a group within Corinth. Corinth was splitting apart, like I told you. They were splitting into different groups and factions. It only took a few years. And there was a group who evidently elevated themselves to think they had some sort of superiority in Christ. And one of the dangers, especially in a church like Corinth, that came from a thoroughly pagan background. And Corinth was as pagan a city. Corinth and Ephesus. The two cities Paul spent the most time in, the, the, the cities where Paul wrote the most letters to, we only have two letters to Corinth, but he wrote four. In, in, in Ephesians, I mean, Paul wrote Ephesians, then he wrote First and Second Timothy while he was at Ephesus. I mean, you know, he, just those cities were thoroughly pagan. And the temptation was always there to go back to their pagan ways. And if you begin to think of yourself as a super Christian who is beyond the normal temptations of life and that somehow your connection to Jesus raises you above everyone else, it doesn't matter when you live or where you live. Your pride and your arrogance and your lack of understanding of Jesus opens you up to fall into a lot of sin and immorality. Paul had talked to them in chapter 8 about idolatry and eating food offered to idols. And we did all that. I'm not going to cover it. Last week, we saw Paul in chapter 9 talking about the value of freedom. 
Because what happened is they took their freedom in Christ and used it as a license to sin. We are free in Jesus. It doesn't give us the freedom to live for everyone. Remember what I tell you, it says many times. Freedom doesn't mean that there aren't limitations or constraints. It means we're free to live within limitations. As I said before, if you're in a, a 10 by 10 room and you have, you know, water and a bed, and you have food, and, and they tell you, you can do whatever you want inside that 10 by 10 room, but you can't leave it. We call that prison. But if you live on the earth and you can, within certain constraints, go anywhere you want on the earth and do anything you want, you just can't leave the earth because you can't unless you get in a plane. The plane's just coming back. If you want to shoot a rocket up, fine, but somewhere you're going to die up there. You ain't leaving the earth. You're still confined to some space. It just happens to be a much bigger. We call that freedom. Wherever you live, there are always constraints on your freedom. As a follower of Christ, I'm free. But there are always limitations. With that in mind, he's going to allude back to the life of Israel, particularly as they wandered in the wilderness. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, and brethren included, sister. Our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, he's using vivid imagery. That the cloud would refer back to that exodus, the cloud of the God guided them. They passed through the sea. And they weren't literally baptized. But when they, when they crossed through the sea, there was a type of baptism. And there was, there was, a, there was an essence, an immersion. It's a vivid imagery. It's not literally water. But what it, what it means when it says that they were baptized into Moses, the freedom that Moses gave them from Egypt, God gave them through Moses, I got it, was imparting and leaving the old behind and going into the new, symbolized by the parting of the Red Sea, is similar in imagery to baptism that we have in immersion, where it symbolizes the leaving of an old way of life and the coming into new. We are baptized into or with Jesus. Their symbolism of the baptism is they were with Moses. So they had a new life. They left the old. They had a new life with Moses. Notice what it says. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank it from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, they ate the same spiritual food, probably referencing the manna that came from heaven, the same spiritual drink, the water. There's a couple times, Exodus 17, uh, another time in Deuteronomy where they were thirsty and they, and they hit the rock and the water came. And the one, the one later on, the one in Exodus 17 wasn't a problem. The one in Numbers 20 was an act of sin on Moses' part that kept him from the promised land. The point is that God provided. And just as and, and it kind of it kind of connects to Baptism and, and a little bit of, of communion in the Lord's Supper when we eat of the spiritual food and drink of the spiritual drink. We do that under Christ. He said that was, that, that was all done, he says, and the rock was Christ. What, what he's pointing out to them is all of this kind of points to Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, Moses, in what's called typology, is seen as a type of, of Jesus. But what Paul is saying here, and this is the important point, all of these things have a symbolism, have a connection, a touch point that allows us to look forward to how Christ 
ultimately fulfills that. The ultimate freedom from slavery is Jesus. The ultimate spiritual food and spiritual drink is Jesus. Everything points that way. Now, Paul, Paul's trying to hammer that home to this Gentile church. Yeah. Notice what he says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And they were laid low in the wilderness. <laughs> the word laid low means they died. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> he delivered them. But because they chose to rebel against that deliverance and to sin. Now, the main sin, of course, obviously, was not to go into the promised land. Uh, and we get that. But there was a series, or we'll see this one, a series of sins. They died in the wilderness. They were freed from an old way of life. But they longed for and they chose to go back to that old way of life in the idolatry of Egypt and not to enjoy the benefits of the freedom they had in Moses when he delivered them. So, in verse 6, now these things happened as examples in that for us, that we would not crave or desire or lust for Evil things as they also crave. Here's where he's going to drive home the point. These were God's people for the time. And granted, you know, we got to always remember. And I, I always try to really explain and keep in mind, God made a promise to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Jesus. Israel was the means to get us to Christ. And they were to live by faith. The law showed them how to do that. Never forget this. The Ten Commandments were not fair to tell a people how to come or find God. The Ten Commandments told people who would come to God how they live their life. And if you get that wrong, you mess all that up. And too many people today in Christianity, you know, keep saying, well, we just follow the Ten Commandments, everything will be okay. No, it won't. Because the Ten Commandments is not what gets us on God's good side. Following Christ and living the way Christ calls us is what he calls us to do. To live a life of faith and obedience to Jesus. No, I'm not saying the Ten Commandments aren't important. I preached a whole series about that in 2016. Somewhere in our archive, you can go watch that whole series. It was good in the summer. Ten sermons on the Ten Commandments called Ten. It was good stuff, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> but the purpose of things is say, this is what God expects. Now, the people of Israel rebelled against what God expected. And if we do the same, we can expect the same problem. Then he gives examples. He said, don't crave evil things. Do not be, he says, idolaters, as some of them were. Before I go and talk about these things, I want, to, I want to explain to you idolatry. I hear all the time. I hear people say really dumb things all the time. That, you know, some people, you know, make themselves an idol. Some people have money as an idol. Some people have fame as an idol, blah, blah, blah. You can make your spouse an idol. The concept of an idol is very, very narrow. It is something an object made by human hands that you worship, period. Money's not an idol. Unless you put money on the ground or on a table and you bow down and proclaim your loyalty as deity and pray to money, to whatever, it's not an idol. Idols or objects or tokens made by humans 
to which we believe deity works through for our benefit. Now, obviously, you can love money. Paul talks about loving money and, and get greedy. Gotcha. I'm not saying you're not a problem. I'm not saying putting yourself on a pedestal is not a problem. Money's, I'm not saying that money's not a problem or even putting some person up on a pedestal is not a problem. That is not idolatry. And I hear people talk about this sometimes. And I'll say, no. And see, here's what happened. When you get that stuff wrong, it just permeates other mistakes. Just get it right. It's not complicated. Certainly, loving money, craving money, you know, worshiping money in that, you know, symbolic sense is wrong. It's not an idol. And the reason that's the problem is you're missing the point. The problem isn't the money. The problem is you. That's the problem. Now, in idolatry, the problem was the idol. It was still them, but it was the creating of something that you pretended somehow was deity. That's what idolatry is. So look what it says. Do not be worshipers of idols. He uses the example. The people sit down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That refers to Exodus 32 with the golden calf incident. When Moses is up doing the Ten Commandments and they're down creating an idol that they worship. Verse 8, nor act, let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's a reference back to Numbers 25, when the Moabite women came out and seduced the men and seduced them into worshiping idols. But let us try as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, Numbers 21. You know, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We don't really know what that's from, but Israel was constantly grumbling, wanting to go back to Egypt. There's a song, I think when we were in the 70s, uh, I think Keith Green did it. My, I want to go back to Egypt. Does that sound familiar? And he's, it, was, it was a kind of a humorous song. Some of you may not know. I don't, I don't, it's got to be a little bit of my, our generation. It was, uh, you had to listen to that type of music back then. But it was all about the people of Israel just grumbling all the time. They wanted to go back to Egypt, wanted to go back to Egypt, wanted to go back to Egypt. And it's kind of a humorous song, but it drove the point. Sometimes we keep wanting our old lifestyle. That's what, that's what he was talking about. Now, these things happened to them as an example. When they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He was saying, listen, ultimately, this is for your example. This would make sense to a Gentile. It may not make as much sense to a Jew. But to a Gentile, they can say, oh, I got that. Why does that matter to me, Paul? I was born, you know, outside of Corinth. And I grew up as a worshiper of Zeus. Why do I care about the Jews? That I'm in Christ now, Paul said, because if you're not careful, you're going back to idolatry or participating in something, even though you claim to be a Christian, is the same as the Jews, what they did, going back to the worship of idols, and worshiping of false gods. It's the same thing that happened to them. Oh, well, that makes sense. What was the result of that, Paul? God killed them, judged them, and destroyed them. That's, that's a pretty good uh, example to get my attention. Therefore, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let him who thinks he can do all this and he's okay, 
I can dabble a little bit with idolatry, and I'm going to give you the example of how they all did this in a little bit. I can do all that stuff. I'm okay. Paul said, take heed. Man, oh man, oh man. <laughs> Sometimes I really have to remind. I have to be careful. I pray every day. I pray, God, help me, with, help me be humble because I'm not. Help me with my pride and my humility. Every so often, I pat myself on the back. Do me a favor. Please, on Sundays, don't ever tell me you thought my sermon was a good sermon. Please don't ever say, David, that was the finest sermon I ever heard. Happens all the time. Because I might believe you. And if you tell me at 1215, that's fine. Because I'm good. After the 1215 service, I'm good. Before the 1215 service, if I believe you, then I'm going to come up here and mess up one or more sermons. If I believe you. And my tendency is to believe you because that's what I want to think, you know. But what what I'm saying is this, all of us, all of us sometimes lift ourselves up and think we're some sort of super Christian. It's easy. It's easy. And you know, compared to some people, you probably are. And if you wonder if you are, compared to someone, say, David, who could I stand next to so that I might think I'm a super Christian? I would say, look in the mirror. That's called irony. No temptation, he says, is overtaking you, but such is common to man. That happens to all of us, he says. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted and beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. He said, listen, that's not uncommon. It's all of, he's telling them that this is what you're about to, and he's about to show them why it's not uncommon. You're being tempted. <coughs> There's no temptation too great. Now, we, we quote this all the time. We take it out of context, too. He's talking about the struggle they're going through to think of themselves as super Christian. This is, not, this is not for the alcoholic to go into a bar and say, there's no two temptation too great that God won't get me through. Well, don't be stupid. Of course, you're, you're just playing with fire. He's talking about the temptations to set ourselves apart as super Christians. As elitists, or as to separate from other believers, to think there's something unique about us, or that we're incapable of sin. He says we're all tempted. You gotta be careful. So he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, term of endearment. Whenever you see the term beloved like this from fall, term of endearment, flee, run as fast as you can from idolatry. Some think that this means primarily. Going back to chapter 8, eating <coughs> food, sacrifice to idols, or just the meal. But most, and I think is correct, this is a very general statement. In every way, shape, form, or fashion, run from idolatry. Why? Because idolatry, remember, is the antithesis of worshiping God. It is the fundamental evil. Not just sin. He's not, you want to flee all immorality. I get it. But idolatry is where you worship. You bow down and pay homage to something other than God. So flee it and flee everything that might suck you into it. In just a minute, I'm going to talk about that in our culture today. Because you may say, I don't have any problem with idols. Well, I, I got you. I speak to wise men. Judge what I say. Remember back in the first chapter, you talked about wisdom 
and, and they all thought they were wise, but weren't. This is a different word for wisdom. I speak to people who have some understanding. Y'all understand this. And then he makes a reference really to communion, the Lord's Supper. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break, just sharing the body of Christ. In other words, aren't we in, in, in communion, which he's going to talk about in chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, aren't we proclaiming Christ that we're one with him? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. He says, now look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices share in the altar? In other words, when you eat the sacrifices and they had those, all those sacrificial meals like Passover, aren't they partaking and sharing of the altar of the animal that was slain? So they, 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 slay, you know, they, they would, would kill, the, kill the lamb for the forgiveness, you know, forgiveness of sins and they partake, participate in it. Aren't they all participating and asking for the forgiveness of sin? What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that, idol, or that an idol is anything? He's not saying that. No, I, I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become heirs and demons. In other words, the idolatry or the idols represented the total opposite of God, Satan and the demons. They, you know, the, only, the only deity is God. Any other worship is to give homage to Satan. And behind all of that was the demonic, that it was the coming of spiritual evil and spiritual powers that were evil. He said, this is a serious thing. <clears throat> you cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or we provoke the Lord to jealousy. We are not stronger than he, are we? Here's what he's saying. Listen, guys. He's telling them. You better run from anything to do with idolatry. Run and don't get close. Because if it sucks you in, just like Israel got sucked in to idolatry, it'll destroy your life. He's not questioning whether they're saved or not. This is not about losing your salvation or not losing it. It's about destroying their life. He said, because you're dealing with the mnemonic, you are falling in line with that which is the very antithesis of God. You're worshiping and giving your allegiance, whether you mean to or not, to one who is not God. Which is why we have to be careful about talking about things being idolatrous. So here's the thing. Because that's, that's not a problem for me. I'm good. I'm not going to worship any idols. Good to go. How does this work for me? There is so much in the world of religion, philosophy, ideology that is antithetical to God, the worship of Christ. That is so much of it is pure evil and dangerous that we have to be careful that we don't get sucked into it. I talk a lot in this last year, and probably moving forward I will, because it's become a real problem of Things like relativism and syncretism of Christian and Christian churches blending in other religious practices and, and beliefs. The absolute danger it poses to let people think that somehow you can come to God through some other means than Jesus. When it's outside of the church, it's one thing. All right, we know that. 
when we invited into the church, it's devastating. There are whole denominations that were once, probably when many of you grew up, strong denominations. We didn't always agree with them, mostly about baptism and communion. That was used to our big disagreement. They're being shattered and ripped apart. Good people, godly people who were, grew up in those denominations feel like they've been abandoned for something that is false because they have. There are churches that were once strong evangelical churches of different denominations who've gone down another path who being destroyed. I've seen it in our own city. Strong churches whose pastors led them down a path and before they knew what happened, seriously damaged them, if not irreparably pretty close. In the danger that we fall into, thinking it's not going to affect us, we're okay. Our, our, our relationship with God is strong enough. Is an arrogance and a pride that can lead you to absolute devastation. And that's what we see. And that's what's happening to people, to our children. I remember growing up being a young youth minister, we were always worried about Jehovah's Witnesses, Hare Krishnas. I, I, I studied so much about Sung Young Moon, I felt like I, 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 could, I could preach him, you know. I studied all these. We studied all those things, and I look back and like, that was a waste of time. You know what we neglected? was what was happening inside our own churches. The things we, Satan, he put that false, that stuff, and that stuff's all wrong. Nobody was going to become a Hare Krishna. Nobody that one of my youth were ever going to become a Mooney. They might moon someone. We all did that in the 70s. That's just life. Some of you are thinking about those times now, aren't you? I got you. I hate you. I know you are. Don't never do that. It's not good. And no one was coming, Mooney. And the whole time, we neglected what was happening inside our churches. People were starting to deny the virgin birth. They were denying the reality, historical reality, the resurrection. They were denying that Jesus, that Scripture, is authoritative and is inspired by God. And they were letting all sorts of false things begin to creep into their churches. And they were letting that which is evil come in through the back door. And today they're paying the price for it. It's devastating. <clears throat> so you need to be careful. And if you wonder why now, I, I preach so much. Listen, we have so many people come to our church who are new to church. They just decided to give us a try, or things have happened with all this COVID and stuff. And, and, they, and, and so we got a lot of unchurched. We got a lot of underchurched, people who grew up in churches and weren't, weren't taught very well. We got a lot of what I call de-churched people, people who kind of left the church and want to come back. And we got a lot of people who've just been in bad situations, sometimes in Baptist churches. And I want them to understand the danger of flirting with some of these ideas that sound so loving and kind and are devastating to your faith. Guard that. Guard that for your children. And trust me, one thing we, we're concerned about is your kids and grandkids. We 100% take care of that. So that's the thing you need to remember. The example from the people of Israel was the, 
was that they died in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. God will not tolerate us flirting with that which is in opposition to him. Well, that's it. We'll finish up chapter 10 next week. Get to chapter 11. Have a little baptism. Be all right.